So Acts chapter 1, reading at verse 12. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers of Jerusalem, in so much as that field is called in their proper tongue, Akaldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. And his bishopric let another take, or his office. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And that's a reading. So in this section of Acts, these are, or this is the record of a period of time uh, for these disciples, which is pretty raw and uncertain. It has been very much um, a roller coaster of emotion and experience within the last few weeks for these disciples. They've known extreme sorrow. Um, they've known shame personally. They've known disappointment. They've known joy. They've known that sense of um, renewal and excitement and all of that when the Lord Jesus had been at the cross and then he was raised from the dead and then he ascended and left them and they were commissioned and they were instructed to wait. And so it's pretty much been up and down. It's been a tumultuous three, four, five weeks. And all of this has been happening and they've been instructed to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the next thing. And now the reality of it all must be dawning on them. And there's 120 or so of them and they are in a kind of hiatus. They're in this period where the Lord Jesus is now absent. They're waiting for the Spirit of God to come according to the promise of the Lord. And they're waiting to start this great commission in the gospel to go out into um, all of the world, starting Jerusalem and Samaria and so on. And that's about to begin, but before it begins, there's this waiting period. And that's what we're reading here in this section. Now, it's interesting that before they will be commissioned, well, before they will start to fulfill the commission of service, that the Spirit of God through Luke records two major things that will take place. And it's interesting when you think about what is selected to be recorded. The one thing that we've read about really is the choice of another apostle to take the place of Judas. And then you have in Acts chapter 2 the record of the descent of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost. Now of all that must have happened during this period, of all the conversations that must have taken place, of all the periods of time they must have been together, waiting, these are the two things that are selected by the Spirit of God to be recorded in quite a lot of detail. If you think about, as some theologians call the law of proportionality, if you think about the proportion of the scriptures taken to record in terms of 
verse number in terms of size, to record these things, it's quite high. So it must be quite significant. So you have these two things, and we're dealing with one of them today. So first of all, when we come to this, there is this period of waiting and praying. And they're gathered together, and as they are going to write through the book of the Acts, they're going to be marked by community, they're going to be marked by togetherness. They're not all going to separate and scatter, but rather they've been instructed to wait and they will do their waiting together. So they come together and they wait together. Now they're going to do a lot of things together in Acts and beyond the book of Acts. Some of the things, for example, they'll serve together, they'll sing together, they will submit together, that's all the essays. They'll learn together, that's another one. They'll actually suffer together. They'll, if you can get a, a word beginning with S for learn, then I'll put it in there. But the idea is this, that they're going to do life together through the book of Acts. And the first thing they'll do together is to wait and to pray. Now again, they will pray frequently together in Acts. You can do a study in that, the times that they came together for prayer for different circumstances of life. For example, when they faced persecution in chapter 4, when they were selecting deacons in chapter 6, when Peter was in prison and they were praying for, I don't know what they were praying for, but they were certainly praying for him, and they were surprised by his release, but perhaps they were praying for that. And when they're going to send out missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, they're also going to pray. So prayer is an integral part of what they do when they come together. So as they are together, they're going to wait and they're going to pray. Now, let's just look at this briefly in terms of their waiting and their praying. And they're going to do this after they have received instruction from the Lord. So you've got these two big things about Christian life here at the beginning of the Acts. You've got the Lord speaking to them and then you've got them speaking to the Lord. That's what we call conversation. You know, sometimes people think they're having a conversation with you and really it is an audience. You are simply there to be the recipient of all the words that come out of their mouth and it's like a monologue and there is no conversation. Conversation requires communication from both of you in the conversation or at least if there's two or three of you. There needs to be coming and going and in our relationship with the Lord you get these two things right at the beginning of Acts. The Lord will speak to them, he will commission them, he'll instruct them, he will teach them and then they in turn will gather together and they will pray, they will communicate with him. So you have this idea of communication right at the beginning. Now that will characterise them in their gatherings. For example, the often quoted verse of Acts chapter 2 verse 42 it's a pity we don't quote the verses that follow it, but verse 42 is often quoted when they're devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, that is, to the teaching of truth given to the apostles from the Lord and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayers. So you've got this idea as well in Acts 2 and verse 42. They receive instruction and they respond to that instruction in prayer. Now, this is before they commence their service. So they were commissioned in the Great Commission again after the ascension in verse 4 to verse 8 of chapter 1. And it was after Pentecost, which is recorded in chapter 2, which is where all the charismatic stuff um, finds a bit of a basis and certainly a lot of confusion about it comes from an understanding of Acts chapter 2. But before that takes place, you've got this. So you've got the ascension and the commissioning of them in service and then you've got Pentecost, the descent of the Spirit, they're endued with, with power, then they start to serve. And in the middle, you've got this. And they are demonstrating that they are in tune with heaven and they are expressing their dependence upon the Lord. And that's important. Nothing displays dependence like prayer. It is an expression of need. It's an expression of reliance. It's an expression of a request for help. All of these things are in prayer. And that's true personally and corporately. So here they are in this period. The Lord is absent it's a new thing for them. He's been physically present with them. 
You know, they turned round and he was there. Now when they turn around, he's not there. And so there is this absence which must have been felt by them because for three years solid, he had been there. Uh, when there was problems, he fixed them. When there was opposition, he faced it down. When there was need, he provided it. He was everything to them. Now he's absent from them. And things are never going to be the same again. And so they seek to pray. They come together to pray. And in a sense, what you have here is like the circumstances we find ourselves in. We need power. We need to wait upon the Lord. The Lord is physically absent from us. We don't have that physical relationship like they had. And so we need to connect with the Lord. And the way that we connect with the Lord is in prayer. It's that point of contact. When you think about that, that you know, when you pray, you're never closer to the Lord. When you get on your knees and you, you close your eyes and you begin to quieten your mind and your heart and try and push out of your mind the things that are crowding it and the things that have to be done in the day and the things that, that concern you that come so quickly into your mind and you begin to try and to, to clear your mind out as best you can for a brief period of time that you might just sense the presence of the Lord. You can't just summon it like that. And it's at that point that you are, that's the point of contact when you are engaging with the Lord. And although he's not physically here, he very much is there in these moments. And so they come to pray. Now notice this about the prayer, just briefly. Notice that there were men and women there when they prayed. It's in verse 13. They come together. All of the disciples that are still there, 11 of them are mentioned. And it says that they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And Luke specifically draws attention to the fact that at this first prayer meeting, as we call it, men and women were there. I always think it's an odd thing that there are prayer meetings, I don't know if you've ever been to them, I've been to quite a few of them, particularly before gospel um, preaching and the women came into the main part of the hall and the men went to another part and all prayed. It's an unusual thing to separate men and women out in that sense for gatherings of prayer. It's certainly, you don't find it, not here, and they're all together, men and women, and they are praying together. They are united in their prayer. In fact, the mother of the Lord is there, but not just her other women. And we know from other scriptures that, uh, that there were lots of women that were part of that disciple group. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and so on. And they are present when prayer is being made. Now you can take the application yourself. But when Christians gather to pray then the men pray and the women pray. The men will pray audibly, but the Lord is listening to both men and women pray. Not one at the expense of the other, but both. And so they're gathered here to pray. And they're almost, they're, always, they're also, I should say, united in their prayer. That expression, one accord, uh, it has a musical idea. There's a compound of two words meaning to rush along in unison. And the idea is just this, that their voices were blended. We get the word harmony from it. Their voices were blended. I did mention this the other night and I was speaking just in this verse that um, any time I'm standing there, David is not here anymore on a Sunday morning or Andrew, but whenever I try to blend my voice in harmony, I just get an awkward look uh, where it says stop. And so when you come to our gatherings, there are those in our assembly here who are able to harmonise. Now, if you don't know what harmonising is, it means that you probably aren't doing it and uh, you're droning away like me. But there are those who are musical and they can sing different notes that although the notes are different, they are blended and lots of different voices singing different notes, but actually producing one sound. It is harmony. And it's the same here in prayer. Different voices in prayer saying different things, but blending together so that there is one sound. It is 
in harmony. There's no disjointed notes. There's no, you know, the person that's near you and you're, uh, you're looking around, who is that? And they're sort of flat or they're out of tune or whatever. Could be you, could be me, who knows? But in terms of prayer, that would be someone praying in a way that's not in keeping, not in harmony with the other prayers that are being made. That wasn't the case here. There was one general sound, despite the fact that there was lots of people praying. And they were with one accord in prayer. And they continued, they persevered. They didn't just do it for a little while. They kept at it. They were intentional about it. They were devoting themselves to this. It was something that they were earnest about, something that they were um, serious about, that they were diligent about. They didn't just turn up and offer up a wee prayer and then when that was done, their minds away out to something else. So this is not a filler This is not something they do because they can't think of something else to do. They come together to pray. Together. Unitedly. Male and female. All of them. Harmonising in prayer. That, by the way, is why we say Amen at the end of a prayer. When And that's male and female. If you agree with what is being said and that person is speaking for you to the Lord in your gatherings, you say amen, which just affirms your association and identification with what is being said. You agree with it. That person is praying and you're praying with them. Their words are your words. And so when someone prays like that and you know it in a prayer meeting when someone is praying and the whole gathered company are in agreement with it, you can hear the sound of it in the amen. Sometimes at the end and sometimes at other points and Jeremy does it harmoniously in our assembly and this is the idea. It should not be that kind of dead thing that happens when someone prays and they sit down and folk haven't even noticed that he stopped and then there's a kind of lackluster amen as a kind of delay. The idea is that we are engaged in prayer together when we gather together. That's what was happening here. And it was a powerful thing because something happened when they prayed like that. What happened was this. The leadership group of disciples, apostles, was strengthened as a result of their prayers. Something happened. They did something. There was an outcome. And the outcome as they're waiting and as they're praying is not that the Spirit of God comes. That will happen in Acts chapter 2. But something else happens. They make a decision. God enables that decision. And a man is provided to join the group of apostles. And so there is something that happens. Now, what is it then that happens? Well, verse 15 down to verse 26 tells us that the 11 apostles become 12 again. The 11 disciples, if you like, become 12. The disciples become apostles at this sort of juncture in the history of the church. These apostles had a unique calling from God and a unique service to fulfil from God. The Lord Jesus had spoken to them in John 15 and he had said to them, you have not chosen me. I've chosen you and ordained you that you go forth and bear fruit. They've been chosen by the Lord Jesus specifically for this ministry. In Acts 10 and verse 39, uh, they reflect upon this and say, we are witnesses of all the things that the Lord did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem and goes on to say this, that We are witness not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he ordered us to preach to the people and to testify solemnly that this is the one who's been appointed by God as judge of the living and dead, and of him all the prophets bear witness. The apostles were the special group of eyewitnesses who would testify to the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were ordained to be those witnesses to the nation of Israel and to the wider world of the resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus. They became the foundation of the church, according to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. He gave to the church in that context apostles and prophets. They were gifted, miraculously gifted, with signs and gifts and wonders that were peculiar to an apostle. There was lots of things that the Lord did through them that were miraculous and only could be done by apostles. But because of the actions of Judas, the twelve had become eleven. Now Judas has become symbolic of betrayal. If you are, if you, you're not going to have a, you know, get a wee baby boy and say, oh, he looks like a Judas. You're not going to use the word Judas freely in that sense. It doesn't have a good connotation. And if someone calls you a Judas, then we know they're not complimenting you. Like, that's an abusive term. And it's based upon the legacy of this man, Judas Iscariot, in the Bible. What he did. His betrayal. His terrible betrayal for some money. He betrayed the Lord who loved him and had done absolutely nothing to deserve that betrayal. And he betrayed a friendship that was close and he betrayed it in the most horrible way by a display of affection and he pointed out the Lord Jesus with a kiss and he betrayed him into the hands of those who took him and crucified him that's Judas and Judas is gone and Peter stands up in verse 15 in the midst of these disciples there's 120 of them at this stage and Peter leads Peter starts to speak this is going to set a pattern for the next few chapters. Peter's going to be the main man. Peter's going to be vocal. He's going to be visible. He's going to be up front and he's going to be speaking on behalf of the others. It's quite remarkable, actually. If you consider how close it was to his betrayal, to his, not his betrayal, his denial and his abject failure. I mean, Peter failed miserably. He failed publicly. He denied the Lord with oaths and cursings. So he's using strong, vile language in public to deny the Lord in the moment when the Lord needed him most. When the Lord was standing there in a, in a scene of suffering and of, of, um, of violence. And Peter denies the Lord. Not because he's faced down by men of violence, but he denies the Lord because he's caught out. His pride was such that he was caught out by the voice of a wee girl. And I think because he had not been watching and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And he fell asleep. And then he was three times over, the Lord said to him, watch and pray. And he fell asleep. And he wasn't ready when the temptation came. And it didn't come in a way that Peter would naturally resist. You know, Peter draws a sword. He's a man of courage. He's a man of faith. He's a big working fisherman. And he would be a man, I think, who would be able to handle himself in a physical confrontation. And so when they come for the Lord in Gethsemane, he pulls a sword out and he will go into battle for the Lord. No problem. But that was a natural thing. He wasn't ready for the spiritual temptation when the voice of a girl catches him out because he's standing warming himself by the fire. You see, he had not watched and prayed. And so he's vulnerable spiritually. And he falls and he falls hard and he falls far and he falls fast. And he knows it and he, he catches the eye of the Lord. He's that close to the Lord when the Lord's suffering and he sees him and the Lord sees him and their eyes meet and he is broken. And the Bible says he left that scene and wept bitterly. The shame, the humiliation, the remorse. But it was more than remorse. It was an evidence in Peter's life of genuine repentance. And the Lord meets him in resurrection ground and restores him. And commissions him again into his service. And this is one of the great examples that when you fail this side of the glory, that failure is not final. When there is true repentance and when there is restoration by the Lord, then the Lord restores. And we're glad about that because how often have we required it? Every one of us here. How often have we denied the Lord? Maybe not 
as publicly as Peter, but how often have we failed? How often have we um, not watched and prayed? How often have we responded to temptation? How often have we had to kneel before the Lord repeatedly? And the older you get, the more often you need to do it and confess our failure, confess our sin and ask for restoration. And the Lord in his mercy restores us. The only reason why any of us can continue to serve If service for the Lord was dependent on purity of life, then most, if not all of us, would be disqualified when we're young, never mind when we get old. And so Peter, like you remember the word of the Lord came the second time to Jonah. There's another classic example of someone who failed the Lord and yet the Lord restored him into his service. Time and time again in scripture you have this. You have it with Peter. Peter is now going to stand up and Peter will get the opportunity to lead on the back of failure. And of all the people who will speak about another person's failure, it's Peter. He'll speak about Judas and his failure on the back of his own failure and his restoration. And so he begins to speak in verse 16. And I think it's quite a remarkable, I don't know what happened in that time, but something big happened to Peter between um, the time of uh, Gabbatha when he failed and this time here in Acts chapter 1. There's been a huge transformation in Peter. When Peter speaks, it's a different tone and it's also, he speaks in a different way. You look at what he says before his failure and there was always that element of pride. And it was always about Peter. He was saying things and it just came out and it was all about, you know, the fact or something to do with his faith or something to do with um, how he felt or, or what the Lord was saying. And But here when he speaks... He begins to speak by quoting the scriptures. Now he'd never done that before, at least not recorded. This was new. It's a new Peter. It's a renewed Peter. And he was now speaking about something that before he had resisted. He had resisted the whole concept of a suffering Messiah. He didn't want the Lord Jesus to go to the cross. It wasn't in his way of thinking. He didn't expect the Messiah to be suffering at all. But now, it's different. I don't know what the Lord did with, with them when, you know, during this period, this five or six week period, when he appeared to them on multiple occasions. You remember in the two on the road to Emmaus and he began from Moses and the prophets and he right through the Old Testament scriptures and showed unto them the things concerning himself. Unfolding the Old Testament, demonstrating where he was in Old Testament scripture. Can you imagine it? What a conversation. And scripture after scripture and just brought to light and, and taught in clarity Christ and all the scriptures. It must, it's priceless experience. Having the Lord speak about himself, where he is to be found in the Old Testament. And there is this maturity in Peter and this understanding of the scriptures and the place of the scriptures in his life now and in the life of this group. It's different. And look at how he speaks. He says, the scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of David. And so he's speaking about the Bible and he's speaking about the Spirit of God and he's speaking about David. And he's saying this, all of these things come together to help us understand what happened with Judas. So Peter's not now thinking off the top of his head. He's not now applying his own thoughts to a situation. He did that so often. And he would look at a situation in the gospel record and he would assess it and he would speak. Here it's different. He is looking at what happened to Judas and he's understanding it through the prism, through the lens of the inspired scriptures. That's now the means by which he will understand events that have taken place and interpret them. And so he does. And he says this, <clears throat> this scripture had to be fulfilled 
the scripture which the Holy Spirit by the mouth of David, that by the way is just an expression of inspiration. That is how these scriptures came about. And the Spirit of God by the mouth of David spoke concerning Judas. And in case they didn't know he was speaking about, which was guide to them that took Jesus. He says, that's the Judas we're talking about. Judas Iscariot. And what he's going to do is he's going to reassure that company of 120 believers, first of all, that what took place was in accordance with what had been revealed in the Old Testament scripture. This didn't knock God's plans off. This was in keeping with God's plans. So he'll quote two scriptures, <coughs> or at least demonstrate that two scriptures are going to be fulfilled down in verse number 20 when he says it's written in the book of Psalms. So he's going to explain the suicide of Judas. Judas had taken his own life. You just think if you've been one of these 12 disciples. They were a band of brothers. They were a close-knit group. They had travelled together as a group for three years. That's a long time. They had sacrificed themselves quite a lot. They had left a lot of things behind to commit to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Master. They lived in close proximity. They shared meals, the conversations they must have had, the teaching they'd listened to, the miracles that they'd seen, all of it. And in their, in their group was a traitor. And not one of them suspected that Judas was a traitor. Not one of them. Not one of them objected to the fact that Judas was given the charge of the money. The group had a lot of fund. Judas carried the money. And he stole from it. Not one of them accused him or suspected. And so Judas was living a complete lie. You think that you know someone when you come to some meetings, you know, and... and you're in a local church, a local assembly fellowship, and you think you know a person, and you're, you know, you're not living in the same home as them. You're not having a kind of relationship like this relationship. And we get surprised when someone that we think we know does something that we think is completely out of keeping with our character. <clears throat> How much more so then? How shocked must they have been to learn that Judas had sold out the Lord Jesus? It must have devastated them. Judas, <clears throat> when the Lord Jesus said to him, you know, whatever you're going to do, go and do it quickly. And they're all going, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Around that table. No one had any idea. <clears throat> and so Judas, his suicide is going to be explained. If you notice in verse 17, first of all, <clears throat> notice his privilege. He was numbered with us and... <clears throat> had obtained part of this ministry, excuse me. He was numbered with us. He had obtained part of this ministry. Judas was one of the twelve physically, but not spiritually. He was different. He had played a pretty full part in three years of ministry. But the Lord had always known that he was not one of his. John 6, There are some of you that believe not, the Lord said. Verse 64. And then John explains it. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. The Lord knew. Can you imagine it? The Lord's looking at this man for three years knowing that he was going to betray him. And then they gather them in that upper room and the Lord girds himself with a towel and he takes a basin and they're all lined up. And the Lord gets on his knees and one by one he washes their feet he comes to Judas, who's going to sell him out. And he takes the feet of a traitor and he washes them. It's quite remarkable. The meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again in John 6, the Lord Jesus says, Have not I chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. <coughs> By the way, this is a significant warning that reality is not determined by reputation. Judas had a great reputation. He was trusted 
by the group with their money. But the reality of who he was was very different from what even his closest friends thought he was. And so we need to understand this, that it is possible. And sometimes we get discouraged because someone that we have thought was a Christian and they've lived as a Christian and then there comes a point, a crisis point in their life and boom. It's as if they once were a Christian and they no longer are a Christian. How did that happen? (coughs) Well, one thing to remember is this. It may have been that they never were a Christian in the first place. That their reputation was not the same as the reality. That's possible. It's not always the case, but that's possible. And it was the case with Judas. It's good to have a self-check for ourselves when we read about this type of thing. That we are not like that. That we're not living a lie. And that lie can be perpetuated because of family, because of social circumstances, because of lifestyle, whatever, until something happens and then the lie is exposed and the reality is displayed. That's what happened here. And so this scripture was going to be fulfilled. Now look at his death in verse 18. He speaks about the death of Judas. And if you take this along with Matthew chapter 27, which gives you a bit more information and you bring the two together, what happens is this, that um, he, he got his 30 pieces of silver, the, the blood price of the Lord Jesus, the price of a slave. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like a life-changing sum of money he took. It really was fairly, in the scheme of things, fairly insignificant. And so he took 30 pieces of silver. It was something, but it shouldn't have been everything. And in Matthew 27, after the crucifixion, His guilt, his remorse was so overwhelming. He went back to the leaders of Israel and he throws the 30 pieces of silver down the ground. (coughs) You can see the whole madness of this, the folly of this. He sells out the Lord Jesus for money. I don't know what was in his thinking. Some people think that he didn't expect the crucifixion to go. We don't know what was in his mind. But he sells them out in any event. And then once it's done, he, the money somehow is burning his hands. It's, it's, it's blood money. And he goes and he throws it down in front of these leaders. And it would appear that they then gathered the money up and they bought a field with it. And that field would be used to bury strangers from then on. And it was a field characterised by blood money. Judas seemed to have been so filled with remorse that he decided to end his life. And he did. It is an absolute tragedy. And so he hung himself badly and he seems to have fallen down from wherever he hung himself and... His body burst open in the middle and his intestines came out. It's a graphic description of a horrific death. This is about as bad as it gets. Someone who's done a terrible thing. Someone who is guilt-ridden and remorseful about that. Can't live with himself. But rather than seek, seek forgiveness and reconciliation and salvation... He's still focused on himself. And he decides rather than seek after God, he'll just end his life. It's quite a modern story in some senses. It's not an, it's not a, an unusual scenario in some senses. And the tragedy, like all circumstances of many different types of circumstances that bring someone to this point... This is tragic when someone decides to end their life. And this man's tragedy was great. Because it says this, that having done so, he would go to his own place. He certainly wasn't going to heaven. 
Now, that cannot be taken, by the way, as a proof text that anyone who has, through whatever circumstances of despair, has decided to take their own life and succeeded in doing so, that does not mean that that act in itself will disqualify them from heaven if they are a true believer in the Lord Jesus. That's not what this is. This is Judas who was not a believer in the Lord Jesus. And on that basis alone, not the means of his death, but on that basis, he went to his own place. What a tragedy. And a man like Judas, who had a reputation which was fantastic, he now has a reputation which is the opposite. And even in those days, it says in verse 19, it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called the field of blood. Everyone knew the story of Judas and why that field had that reputation. It was paid for in blood. And could it get any worse for Judas? It was actually the fulfilment of scripture. And so Peter says, it is written in verse 20 in the book of Psalms. Imagine this being your lasting legacy. Psalm 69 being fulfilled, verse 25. Psalm 109, verse 8, when someone will take his place, his office. Episcopus, I think is the word in Greek. And Pete, someone's going to take his place. And he has gone to a desolate place. And so they're going to choose a replacement. Verse 21 down to verse 26. Well, the question is why? Why choose a replacement? Why, why is this given such space as it is in Acts chapter 1? Why is it significant? Is it important? Well, it is important. And this space that's devoted to it demonstrates its importance so why 12? Well, 12 was significant. Speaking to the disciples, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 had said this, the New American Standard Version, Truly I say to you that, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Twelve was an important number. These men would bridge the gap, if you like, between Old and New Testaments. Between God's dealings with Israel, which dominate the Old Testament, God's dealings with the church, which dominate the New Testament. The church is not a continuation of Israel. They are two different things. And you've got the Old Testament, you've got the New Testament, and right in the middle, bridging them, you have these twelve men. And they've got an important role to fulfill. In Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem, verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's a prophetic significance of 12 and these 12 apostles. When you go right back to the beginning of God's dealings with Israel, when God called them as a people through Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, you discover this, that the child that would come from Abraham, you have Abraham and you have Isaac and then you've got Jacob and from Jacob you've got 12 sons. And these would be the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis 49 verse 28 is the first place in the Old Testament where the 12 sons are spoken of as the 12 tribes. Of Israel. And so you have these 12 apostles, disciples that become apostles, they become messengers. They have a significance relating to the Old Testament, they have a significance relating to the New Testament. It had to be 12. But now there's 11, not 12. And so Peter says this to fulfill scripture, the Psalms, someone must take his place. So you have the qualifications of the person who they're looking for in verse 20 to verse 21. And these can be summed up in this way that he was to be a man, first of all, to be male. Secondly, he had to be a companion of the Lord Jesus since the baptism of John. And thirdly, he had to be a witness to the resurrection. 
Now, there was obviously disciples that followed the Lord from these early days. It wasn't just the twelve. Male and female. And so they put forward two men in verse 23. They appointed two that had those qualifications. Joseph and Matthias. And Joseph called Barsabbas. That just means son of the Sabbath. Um, Justice would be his Roman name. And they made them the object of their prayer. I don't know why they just chose two. Maybe there was only two that had these qualifications. I don't know. But they just chose these two and they said, we're going to make this a matter of prayer. It's interesting that they were continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication. And then an issue comes up. So what are they going to do? Well, they already are in the habit of praying. And so they just continue to do so. They're going to make this a matter of prayer. And so they pray. In verse 24 and verse 25, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men. We get the word uh, cardio from where this uh, knowing the hearts of all men comes from. It could be translated as the heart knower. It's a kind of title of the Lord. He knows the hearts of all men. It was the reality of who we are. He knew the reality of Judas when no one else did. He knew his heart. And the supplication is this. Show which one of these two that was chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship, which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they express their complete dependence on the Lord and they say, Lord, show us. Now the Spirit of God has not come at Pentecost as yet. They are not indwelt with the Spirit. They don't have the completed canon of Scripture. In fact, obviously, the New Testament hasn't been written at this stage. So you've got the Old Testament Scriptures. You have them supplicating the Lord. The Spirit of God hasn't come. It's a very different situation than we find ourselves in. And so what they do is consistent with an Old Testament context. They draw lots. Now, when people drew lots or cast lots, usually what happened, I understand, is they wrote people's names on stones. They put the stones in, like in a jar in a hat, you know, and sugared them about. I don't know if they sugared them about or not, but they, they apparently they did that. One writer said they shook the jar until a stone fell out. I don't know if that is right or not. And the name of the stone was the person chosen. That level of detail is not given us. It's just described as they would cast lots. They would pray and then they would cast lots. And they did. They gave forth their lots and the lot fell upon Matthias. This is the last time that this happens. Because the Spirit of God's coming in Acts chapter 2. And this Old Testament style method of determining the mind of God is not required. Because they're going to be indwelt by the Spirit of God and he's going to illuminate the revealed Word of God. So this was not, no longer valid going forward as a means of determining guidance from God. The question is just this. Was this the right thing to do or not? Some people say, listen, they jumped the gun here. There was an apostle coming. It's called Paul. He would have made up the twelve. But now you've got thirteen. So what's happened to number 12 when Paul became an apostle? It's all thrown out of sync. Well, it hasn't actually because one writer put it this way. There's good reason to conclude that God set aside the church's choice in raising up Saul, a man that the apostles found hard to accept as a fellow believer, let alone an apostle. It's been supposed by some that the whole procedure was unauthorized and invalid. However, the fact that Matthias was afterward numbered with the 11 apostles and that the whole body was from that time called the Twelve, in Acts chapter 4, would seem to demonstrate that this was all approved by the Lord. What about the number 13, though? Well, it's like this. I always used to, well, I used to wonder about the whole thing about Joseph um, and the Twelve Tribes of Israel, and how that worked. Because if you counted them up, there's actually 13 names. So why were the 12 tribes and yet 13 names? And do you remember when Israel came out of Egypt, Levi became a separate entity, a priestly tribe given over to the service of God in a specific way. And the tribe of Joseph was split into two, Manasseh and Ephraim. So you've got Manasseh, you've got Ephraim, and they represented Joseph. 
and the foundational structure of 12 remained because Levi had that particular service for the Lord. I think it's the same idea here. Judas is replaced with Matthias and then Paul is added. And he is added in a peculiar way as one born out of due time. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8 he speaks of himself in that way. And he speaks of himself as being different. He actually hadn't been with the Lord from the days of John the Baptist either. But he certainly was a witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And he'll defend his apostleship in various epistles. Uh, particularly in the epistle to the Galatians, he will resolutely defend his apostleship. But I don't think, based upon the Old Testament idea of the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles, I don't think there's an inconsistency there at all. I think this is given the space it is because this had to be done and was done in keeping with the fulfilment of scripture. And that is just the prelude. That is just the waiting until we get to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2 what we have is a description of the coming and the permanent residence of the Spirit of God in the hearts of his people upon earth. What you have is the birthday of the church in Acts chapter 2. You have the baptism of the Spirit that is taking place in Acts chapter 2. And so when people say you need to be baptised in the Spirit as some procedure that Christians have to go through post-salvation, that we're going to see is not actually what that expression means. It is not a tier or a level of Christian experience that you need to attain and you need to aspire to at all. We're going to see there's a difference between being filled by the Spirit in the Bible and being baptised in the Spirit. There's a difference between the two. We're also going to see this whole idea of speaking in tongues that you get and in, in practised in, in some churches nowadays, or lots of churches nowadays, and we will see what that actually was in Acts chapter 2. This linguistic miracle that took place. Fantastic. Not something to be denied or not something to be argued away. A fantastic linguistic miracle that took place at the very beginning of this um, church age. Acts chapter 2 is a fascinating, important foundational section that we must really get a grip of. Um, to understand about spiritual gifts, about speaking in tongues, about the baptism of the Spirit and all these things. It's important. I'm saying all that so you'll come and listen to it. Um, but it is actually quite important um, to learn. And if you go wrong in Acts chapter 2, then you will go wrong in your understanding of the apostolic teaching in relation to these things in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians and elsewhere and in Romans. It's important to get that foundation basis historically in Acts chapter 2. So let's just pray 